Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Roxanne Petraeus, co-founder and CEO of Athena, a modern compliance training platform that provides informative, cringe-free content delivered through innovative methods that actually works. Thanks for joining today, Roxanne. Thanks for having me. Well, I saw, Roxanne, that you went to Harvard and did ROTC and then started your life in the military. So I'm curious, did you grow up in a military family? Yeah, and not the most traditional path. I think there were five of us my year at Harvard that joined the Army. Um, But I did uh, actually grow up in a military family. My father um, served in the um, Dutch Air Force. He's from Holland. My mom was actually a U.S. um, nurse in the Air Force. And that's how they met. And so had a little bit of exposure to the military and sort of um, my parents had both had a pretty positive experience. And so um, uh, it's actually quite common now for folks in the military to have family um, members. It's kind of becoming a bit um, isolated. I bet. I think in, in my year, there was maybe one female that was doing ROTC in college. It was definitely a standout. Uh, what were some of the more uh, either interesting deployments or more impactful experiences you had in the military? Yeah. I mean, I served, I think, for about seven years total. During that time, I deployed to Afghanistan during the uh, sort of been 2010 um, surge. And then I got to do foreign military training in Cambodia and Mongolia. Um, So working with their militaries on things like disaster preparedness um, and and, um, sort of other other, uh, training. And that was um, just like a super neat experience. Not a lot of um, countries I think I would have gone to otherwise. And then, of course, um, you know, being in a war zone and kind of understanding what foreign policy looks like on the the ground level was like a really formative experience. Um, Challenging for sure, but, but glad I was able to do it. We'll get into this in a little bit of, you know, what it means to be a female in the workforce and a founder, but what was your experience like as a female in the military? Yeah, I mean, uh, I similar to, it sounds like your friend, I was the only one um, graduating my year at um, Harvard who was a woman. Uh, and most courses or, you know, units I was in, I was typically maybe um, one or two others, but it was, you know, um, I think the stats were like, Maybe the army was 15% women when I was in, and then I was in special operations for the latter half of my career, and that's even smaller. I think um, I think it's like both a great experience and a challenging experience. Great in that uh, I worked with some amazing soldiers and officers who really supported my development, who gave me um, often the best ones, gave me really harsh um, feedback and, and criticism that like I think just made me a better leader. Um, and, and like <laughs> built resilience and all of that. And I think it's really hard. I mean, the, unfortunately, the military, for example, has pretty pervasive sexual harassment and assault. It is not always the most inclusive place, and that doesn't just include gender. And so I think being in those environments at least gave me an appreciation for um, the importance of setting an inclusive uh, tone at the top in particular. 
I, I work on, among other things, um, harassment prevention in, in my life now. And one of the interesting things there is that the research on what works, what actually creates um, inclusive cultures that have less, for example, harassment, it's actually just your immediate leadership. Um, so there are studies that like basically whatever the Pentagon does, it doesn't matter. You can put all the slogans on posters. And what really matters is the person who's leading your small unit and whether they demonstrate that they actually care about um, preventing harassment, but uh, being in- inclusive. And I think that's like so true of the workforce too. You can be at the greatest company in the world. And if you have a boss that just didn't get the memo, like that's your experience. And, and so I think just the appreciation for um, managers and leaders being like really close to the front line and how important that is, is something that um, uh, I've, I've kept with me. I would imagine there's also a lot of parallels between the public and private sector when it comes to things like that and harassment in general, both being pervasive, but also the manager being the one who's ultimately responsible and also kind of proliferating it. Yeah, I think it's just like, you know, we hear a lot now, um, our buyers, since we legal are, are people ops, and they they totally recognize that like, in particular in work from home or distributed teams, um, the leader, the CEO, the CTO, whoever it is, can't be everywhere. And so you're really like, I think to build um, healthy, inclusive companies, um, like frontline managers really are kind of the ball game. Like you, you just have to have them um, trained, empowered, know what to do, know who to go to if they encounter a situation, because they just really define the experiences of the individual contributors who report to them. Well, I was going to get into this later, but now that we brought it up, how have things shifted in terms of remote work? Are we seeing a decrease in harassment? Are we seeing, you know, differences? I'm curious how it's evolved. Yeah, I mean, like, not surprisingly, data is always always tricky here because underreporting is is a, a big issue. But um, I remember early on, uh, someone was saying like, oh, well, now that um, teams are remote, like, I guess there won't be any more harassment. And it was like, have you been online? Like, that's seriously, have you been on Twitter? (laughs) Like, just like any, like, that's just a pretty absurd idea. So like, not surprisingly, the, the headline is like, no, distributed teams, remote work, all of that certainly hasn't removed harassment discrimination. It's just kind of changed the, um, obviously, the, the modality. Um, I remember seeing, I want to say it was a Project Include report pretty early on in the pandemic that showed that there were um, slight changes in terms of um, where harassment and discrimination were most likely to happen, different demographics and things like that. But it certainly um, overall hadn't uh, dramatically decreased. What we hear um, from you know our buyers, we get in feedback and all of that, is just that you're navigating different situations and in some ways, like it's not more complicated, but for example, early on, folks were now um, coming to work from their maybe bedrooms, they had their families behind them, like all of these certain things that you never would have navigated before that uh, brought up amazing opportunities to get to know know, your colleagues in kind of a different way, but also kind of presented um, potential challenges. So I think that that's kind of the headline is like, nope, hasn't gone away, but definitely has um, changed some of the formats. It's not the classic, like you go to a bar after work, that type of scenario. And instead now it's um, a Zoom-based conversation. Yeah, it's been very interesting. It feels like you have such a more intimate look into the lives of the people you work with or for, or you know, even external parties, because you are seeing their house, their bedroom, their family. It definitely felt, I feel like for the first year of the pandemic, Everyone was trying to come to grips with how to be professional in that situation, but also recognize the fact that we're humans. This is, we all have lives and that's just part of who we are. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's amazing positives, you know, that have come out of this. Um, I had a kid during the pandemic, my son. And I mean, before I never would have showed up to a meeting with like a spit up on my pants and like a kid strapped to my body. Uh, Cause those like, that's just not the world that we lived in. And um, I think the positive for me that I can see in various um, uh, team members also navigating is that I didn't have to have this like stark distinction between my quote personal life and my professional life. Of course, this you know there's always trade offs, and so the trade offs now are like, well, what are the spaces where you can go and kind of um, step back and um, take a quote break from work and and all of that? Like that's certainly a challenge, but I think that there's a whole group of people um, uh, who are really happy to be able to have more flexibility to incorporate parts of their lives into work, um, like you know, um, childcare providers being being pretty high up on that list. I had a similar experience. I also had a baby during the pandemic, the first one. And I read right. the blog post you had about kind of the motherhood penalty and what your experience was like. And I think yeah. so many women have experienced challenges, especially building a company, fundraising, dealing with various external parties when uh, you know they're pregnant or have a baby. And it's been really nice to be able to have a time. I personally didn't tell anybody for almost eight months. Yeah. Nobody had a clue. And my baby was actually a month early. So I kind of shocked everyone. And I think people had different reactions. Some people said, you know, for me, it's great. Women have the ability to do that and not be treated differently. But also, you know, some people didn't like that I hid it for so long. So I'm yeah. curious what your experience was like. Yeah, my experience was um, I had, had actually miscarried pretty early on in, in Athena, which I ended up um, writing about. And that that kind of um, that experience combined with like, um, unfortunately, just having a um, situation where an investor early on had asked me if I was pregnant or was planning on um, getting pregnant. And, you know, it was pretty demoralizing and talking to other founders had heard that like, it's not a, uh, unfortunately, not a, a totally isolated you know, incident. This does happen. So I was certainly pretty cautious about not wanting to over broadcast um, that uh, I you know wanted to be a mom and, and have a family, despite the fact that I think if I'm being totally honest, that's absurd. Like I think you know <laughs> there should be um, zero concern with my ability to be a CEO and be a mom. Like I'm very capable of doing both. Um, but uh, kind of leaving that aside, yeah, I definitely I definitely thought more about like what's the timing, um, how do I want to uh, you know talk to investors about it, et cetera. And um, our investors, like not surprisingly, were amazing when I, uh, you know, did share that I was um, uh, pregnant. Um, we actually assigned a, it's like a um, either cool or embarrassing founder story. I signed a term sheet, like because I had gone into labor early from the hospital. Um, uh, yeah, just um, to like get it across the finish line so my co-founder could to take it from there. And um, I think that was because our investors like really believed in us and, you know, we're um, doubling down and, and all of that. And so I don't, I don't mean to say that I think that the, um, you know, entire startup community um, uh, can't make it work, but, but yeah, it's just like, it's a tricky, I don't think there's a right answer. Like I wouldn't advise women founders to talk about it early or wait until they're on the, um, you know, in the um, hospital. Like, I think it's just like sort of tricky. There are trade-offs. Um, but I'm very glad that uh, in terms of building a company and a team, uh, I mean, everyone was just wonderful, like from obviously my co-founder on down in terms of recognizing, okay, this is happening. We're going to um, provide support and all that, but also like, we don't need to make it your whole life. I didn't feel like suddenly I became a mom and then only, you know, people wanted to ask me about like 
whatever, what diapers I used or something. And people still like asked me about like what deal we were taking across the finish line and, and all that, which I, I appreciated because you can only talk about diapers for so long. Yes. And also uh, the men are not treated that way. So it's great <laughs> that people can look at you from a business perspective too. Well, totally. you know, you're, early experience with that investor kind of gets into this whole concept of compliance. So I'm curious, you know, did you always want to start a company and what gave you the seed of an idea for Athena? Yeah. I mean, I think I always liked like um, building things, building teams. That's kind of what the army is all about, like accomplishing missions, like always loved all of that. Candidly didn't know that much about um, like startup world. And it sort of seemed like um, I didn't look like a traditional um, founder. And so I got more excited about ideas and less about like just being a, a founder. And I, this idea had been percolating for a long time in the military. It took a ton of quote compliance training. We called it check the box training. And it just always blew my mind that a, um, the same organization that can conduct amazing training exercises, you know, teaches uh, us to jump out of planes in a three week training course, like all of these sort of really great, you know, deploy units, all of it. And then they would pack people into a room and say like, don't do bad stuff. Okay. Got it. Like fine here. And you're like, really? Like that's, that's like, these are both called training. And so it confused me. And then I left the military and did a very brief stint as a consultant and was just surprised to see that the private sector had a version of, of this, um, you know, people who are very highly paid and overscheduled are spending hours every quarter clicking through dumb training. And I couldn't understand that either. Um, and so that was sort of the, the germ of the idea. Got incredibly excited about it, met my co-founder, and she had all these ideas for how we could really leverage technology to make this, um, like, uh, redesign the experience, not just make it like 10% better. And that's what got me super excited about starting Athena. What is the history of compliance training in the U.S.? And is it standardized? Is it different across states? I actually don't know. Yeah. I mean, um, so like uh, when I was uh, doing the research early on, it was really interesting. Like, you know, there's uh, training on things like insider trading like that, you know, is, is a big um, uh, part of it, kind of code of conduct and, and all of that. And it sort of came out of like um, <laughs> corporate issues and uh um, regulators trying to figure out like how do you um, improve the situations that companies also companies trying to demonstrate to regulators that they're taking issues seriously and this was kind of like what has percolated up through that like um, uh, exchange there's this amazing um, I think it was like an HBR article from a while ago talking about how compliance training and by a while ago I mean like I think the 90s or something um, like really needed a revamp and uh, one of the examples they cite, and I'll have to go look back at which bank, but some bank had an insider trading incident. And they um, uh, essentially the case that they make is like, we told this particular trader something like 40 plus times in training, not to um, not to like insider trade. And you could look at that either as like, man, what a great training program. You definitely gave that message. Or like, how bad is your training that you tell someone 40 times and they still do it? <laughs> Seriously, um, yeah, and so like that kind of the kind of I don't know um, tension in compliance training is like um, really inputs are measured and outputs are this like question mark. So you measure people sat through sixty five minutes of X training and they took Y training twelve times, but there's um, really very little um, in terms of like okay, but did it work? Did they emerge from that training any smarter? Did they change their behavior? Like all of that, it's really early innings. And so we've been working um, on 
and I can back up and explain kind of how we do training, but essentially on embedding questions in order to get at like, is behavior actually changing at the company? What's the relationship between a particular type of training and the output you might see? So if you give more training on hiring and interviewing and the appropriate questions to ask during an interview, would that venture capitalist who asked me if I was pregnant have not asked me because, you know, he would have realized like, Hey, in addition to being um, kind of like the wrong thing to do, it is illegal in these sorts of situations. And um, so like, those are the types of questions that we ask, like, is training actually working? Not just how many minutes, you know, is someone sitting through it? Yeah. There's this interesting concept of just in time and trying to do it when something is situational. You know, there's actually a lot of parallels in the cybersecurity world that I'm hearing. You know, a lot of people are trying to say, how can we make these uh, trainings around not getting fished and things like that more bite-sized? Is there a possibility to deliver this type of training in time, like in more real time? It's what we do. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, the, the kind of the compliance training platform, Athena, that we've built, integrates with your HRIS system, Gusto, Rippling, whatever, to automate all of the admin. Um, and so that means things like if you move from New York to California, that triggers different training and we we handle all of that. That's kind of a, a V1. But what we have built is the idea of tr- uh, digestible training over time. And with the functionality that, for example, um, companies training on our code of conduct can send their gifts policies to things like, you know, you shouldn't give or receive gifts over $75. And they can time that with, for example, the holiday season in the U.S. because that's when it's like most likely to be impactful, right? That's when you're most likely to send that um, great customer of yours a gift. And so it's like incredibly helpful to be reminded of your company's gifts policy at that moment. We train on harassment prevention. It's one of the biggest or rather most um, popular courses that we have. And um, we'll do things like release a nudge on allyship and LGBTQ plus colleagues during Pride Month, because it's just like likely to be on your mind. And so that's like a really, it, we, it combats what we kind of call the like arbitrary Tuesday problem. If I just like drop information on an arbitrary Tuesday to you, like maybe it's helpful, but probably not. And so we continue to think about how to iterate and deliver training when it's most impactful, when it's the moments that matter. Um, that's, that's sort of both the current and then the, the um, exciting future vision. Are most of the state requirements just such that your employees must complete this in the year? Or how does it work from a when you have to do it and how, how frequently you have to have your employees complete it? Definitely. So there are at least six states that um, require um, some form of, for example, sexual harassment prevention training. Um, on our website, we um, have some explainers of those. So if there's fellow um, founders who are listening and are like, what do I need to do? We break down New York, California's, for example. Those are some of the, the big ones. Um, maybe not surprisingly, they all have slightly different requirements um, that do include things like time. They include things like um, when employees need to be trained, for example, X months after a new hire joins, they need to have done their first training, all of that. So it's actually quite complex. And I think that a lot of great startups, ours included, have kind of built with the idea of like, you're a great founder doing, you know, building out um, your company and you shouldn't have to try to navigate all of this complexity. So how can we automate that um, for you so that you're not Googling Illinois specific um, sexual harassment prevention requirements because you happen to have hired one person there and instead like let us do that um, work for you with a, a seamless software experience. 
Well, that's another thing that remote work introduces a ton of complexity for. Now, as opposed to having to comply with one state where your office was, you have to comply with every state where you hire people. That's so right. thinking through that seems like quite the headache for a company. Yeah, in particular, because in the US, like um, there's a state-based regulatory environment, and then there are sometimes national requirements, there are best practices. Um, and we're just talking about the US, of course, then there are also global um, requirements for harassment prevention. Um, and so yes, like my company being one of uh, many that have recognized that um, in this new world, a great thing is talent is everywhere and a challenge is that uh, so are the regulations. And so we've we found a lot of um, traction just in terms of saying like, this is a thing that we automate. How do you stay on top of all of those different <laughs> regulations? Um, yes, I mean, it's uh, there's a ton of complexity. We have um, uh, both an incredible network of um, law firms that we work with. We have um, our own in-house um, counsel, and we just spend a lot of time, um, you know, making sure that we're uh, abreast of these. Thankfully, like I think states do a good job of um, kind of announcing these in advance. So actually, when Athena first started, we were aware that New York was changing the regulations. I want to say like the month after we, um, Anne and I, my co-founder and I got together, which was an amazing opportunity for us to quickly pick up a cohort of what what became like our um, beta customers, precisely because you know these regulatory changes were happening right as we started, and we were like, oh, cool, like we, this is what we're solving. So it was, it was sort of a fortuitous moment. When you think about the content piece, you know my colleagues and I joke. You use the word. Uh, you know, most is very cringeworthy, which I think is just very spot on. It is cringeworthy to the nth degree. And my colleagues and I joke that every year when we have to do especially the sexual harassment prevention training, everyone puts it on mute and then waits and checks every few minutes when you have to do the little quiz to move on to the next piece. (laughs) And then you do it again. How are you creating content that isn't cringeworthy? Yeah, I mean, compliance can be kind of like um, carrot or stick, right? So like, Historically, it's been stick where like your company will yell at you to do it and maybe they'll shut off your email after a certain point. We've thought much more about how do we incentivize the right behavior versus punish the wrong behavior, though, of course, we have to have mechanisms to chase, you know, the folks who um, don't do it. And I think the answer is like, make remove every barrier between a person and training they already don't want to do. So it's like might sound simple, but like make sure it's mobile friendly, deliver it via Slack or email wherever people hang out because, um, you know, it can be just like a pain if you have six complicated windows before you can even do your training. We think about SSO, like all of those kind of, how can this be as frictionless um, as possible? And then um, we develop our content in-house, which we have a very strong perspective is the right thing to do because if it is bad, if it's cringy, if you're just like, oh my goodness, what like 1950s scenario have I found myself in? Um, you're just not going to do it because compliance historically has taken your attention for granted. They've just said like, well, your company's going to make you do it. So I'm just going to give you a crappy video once a year and I don't care. And we've thought much more about how I think really great software companies are built, which is not just the buyer, but the real end user. So it's things like we'll use um, graphic novels or short t- like TikTok style videos or um, podcast, um, and we'll make it digestible and short and engaging and really relevant with what's happening in the world. So it might have like an interesting study or, or talk about when the pandemic first happened, we started talking about online harassment, you know, harassment via Slack, all of these things. So we think what we heard from um, not just the admins of training, but the 
you know, random engineer at company X that we um, train that like, Hey, this was useful. And if you give people stuff that's useful, they you know, usually are pretty open to doing it. Like you don't have to force me um, to read a book that I think is good. And so that's how we've oriented content. Um, I'll say one more thing, which is we've also just done the no brainer of instead of creating content we think is good, we just ask people, did you like it or not? So after every five minute piece of content that gets put out, employees can essentially thumbs up, thumbs down the content. And at this point, we have over half a million pieces of in-app ratings that have been put through our system. I think 93% of them have been positive. And for the office's most hated training, like that's a, you know, (laughs) we feel pretty good about that one. Well, I think if you look at what Virgin Airlines did for their in-flight safety video, right, just by making something fun and different, you're forced to watch it. But if you look at people on the plane, people watch it, people love it. I think it got great reception. And so I think it's really true that if you do make something fun of the times, relevant, bite-sized, people will engage and actually enjoy it. Totally. that means you're essentially acting not only as a software company, but also a media company. So what has that been ex- experience been like of building essentially an in-house media arm? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely have an in-house um, content team. And again, I think it's totally the right move because it kicks off this virtuous cycle of employees engaging with our platform and therefore giving us incredibly useful data on um, everything from like, what percentage of sales teams can identify a bribery incident? Like that is super helpful, helpful data as we think about building out the rest of the compliance operating system. Um, in terms of how you make great content, I think it's like how you make great product, which is some mix of art and science. And for us, the science comes from ask users for feedback, both, both quantitative. So what I, I mentioned, the thumbs up, thumbs down and qualitative. We have free text boxes And learners give incredibly useful feedback that just allows our content team to iterate on content and like ship better and better um, training based on that feedback. Um, You know, our content team reports into our CTO, my co-founder, precisely because we like really think of it as a key part of the product and it sort of follows the same um, processes and um, frameworks that like, you know, design, engineering, like like all of it. Um, And so I think that's like created a really... um, integrated product team um, that, that yeah, produces just like an incredible product that employees actually want to engage with. What's been either the best or funniest piece of user feedback that you've received? <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> um, there are a lot. Um, I feel like, you know, the 93% are positive. Uh, and then so people will write free text feedback because they are either incredibly impressed with what we have done or have very strong opinions about whether, for example, harassment is even an issue. I'll just like leave it at that. But occasionally uh, there are moments where we just look at, you know, um, in aggregate and wonder like, okay, that, that was, um, that was a thought. <laughs> that was a thought. I love that. I mean, in general, I think people that leave reviews tend to fall on one end of the spectrum. You kind of remove all the middle. <laughs> I will say that the folks on our team who um, who review that feedback are um, <laughs> doing incredible work. <laughs> <laughs> what has the experience been like building, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, compliance is something that a company must do. They must actually provide this every year to their employees, which means you have to displace an existing solution. They would have had to be doing it last year. What has been like building something that, you know, is a check a box type product, but also needs to displace a solution? Any learning lessons there? 
Yeah, I think for us, it's pretty interesting because we get to um, sell across the spectrum. So we sell to incredible public companies, for example, like Netflix, but we also sell to like three person startups that sign up through our self-serve. And so you're exactly right that any company of about 100 employees or more will be ripping and replacing. I was just talking to one of our advisors and she was like, you don't rip and replace, you rip and revolutionize. And I was like, you know what? I like that. Um, but but um, so you're exactly right that we'll be replacing whatever existing solution they have because it's very rare to see a large company without a compliance training platform. Um, we will be the first for our scaling um, companies who join or self-serve uh, companies. But uh, as we think about like how you kind of build a, a sales team that's oriented toward um, that type of motion, I think it has incredible opportunity because we don't have to make the case that you should be using any sort of tool. They know it, like their their legal team is heavily motivated to ensure that they have a, a product that meets the requirements. And so it means that what we get to do is make the case, um, not that you should use a compliance training platform, but that you should use ours. So we just think a lot about like how to um, how to make that case, how to do storytelling in particular, because what we've done is, um, you know, rip and revolutionize um, aside, what we have done is like redesigned the process. It is different. We are different than any provider that you've used because we train in digestible bits over time. So it does kind of force us, but I think that's really good to tell that story in a way that a buyer who's been using a, you know, inc legacy incumbent for the past like five or 10 years still feels comfortable coming over to our much more um, like innovative approach. I think what you're doing really epitomizes my goal of this podcast is to show just how sexy unsexy spaces can be. <laughs> you know, it's taking something that most people think of as not sexy, you know, compliance training, but you can actually make it fun. You can make it revolutionized. You can make it engaging. And that seems like exactly what you guys are doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, I think problems that every business encounters are fascinating, whether it's like you know, um, finance or like these sorts of quote back office things that it might be easy to just look at and kind of roll your eyes and say like, this is like old school type stuff. But I mean, it's sort of the crucial plumbing that like makes your company um, work. And I think as we like compliance, like it's a um, bad rap in part because it's truly one of the most boring words in the English language. Like no one knows what it even means. Um, but I think that there's been a massive shift accelerated by COVID, great resignation, like all of this in terms of companies recognizing that um, compliance and culture are very closely linked. Like if you have a company in which there are ethical lapses that are happening, um, you have harassment, you have discrimination, you um, have employees who sort of don't know what the right thing to do is and or don't feel comfortable um, reporting issues, like that causes deep problems in a company. And so I think I've seen a real shift in terms of how seriously companies take these issues and how much they really want to invest in modern solutions versus say like, you know how we think about inclusivity, bottom of the barrel, like what do I need to do to be compliant? And um, that's what I'll do. And I will do not a, like, you know, inch more than that. Like, I mean, that, you know, is a very, um, I think like old school traditional approach that I don't really see that much of anymore because companies have recognized that like, people equal culture and um, a healthy culture is, is pretty crucial to keeping those people. And so this, um, I, I just think that while we absolutely are compliance and that's how um, we position ourselves, I think we've just seen that the um, push to inclusive, thoughtful cultures has really accelerated our adoption because companies get that message now.
Yeah, I think you're spot on. And even now the media is doing such a better job too of making it front and center of how much this does affect culture. I don't know if you watched the Super Pumped TV show, but I think this was front and center there and really just showing how impactful it is when you don't have that right type of culture. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, on the on the more positive side, there are companies that just like really have gotten this right, have thought about culture, have been like early leaders and in, in, um, innovators here. And um, it's funny because I think when it's positioned as like a nice to have a kind of like, oh, and, you know, you should also have a nice culture. It can kind of be like thought of as just sort of window dressing. But I think the smartest companies are ones who get that like, no, no, this is a key part of how you have a performance culture, like an inclusive culture and a performance culture are not um, like antithetical or, or instead um, Francis Fry of Harvard Business School is one of our earliest advisors. And I think she just like had such um, smart thoughts on this of like, how do you get people to be able to maximally contribute to a company? And it's like, well, they should really feel like they can do that. Like that's, that's the game. Yeah, absolutely. And like they're an owner. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. The last question I always like to ask, has there been a piece of advice you've been given in your career or your life that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Yes. <laughs> um, many, I feel like the army has great, uh, like turns of phrases and things that um, stuck with me. But I think one that comes to mind um, is like uh, when I was like an early cadet and was, you know, like leadership, I don't like, how do you do this? This seems really um, scary and intimidating and, and all of it. And I remember one of these great officers I worked with was just like, leaders just care. Like, that's it. Um, if you're um, a good leader, you're just sort of caring about your org. And that doesn't mean that you're being nice or coddling or, you know, always quote, giving someone what they want to hear. But it means that at the end of the day, you sort of care about their development, you care about their input. And I found that a really nice piece of advice, because it's not complicated. Like, and usually decisions at the end of the day, they aren't that leadership decisions, at least aren't that complicated. They're more just like, oh, man, they're hard, or they're an uncomfortable conversation or all of that. But it's very clarifying, I think, to realize that like great leaders just care about their organization. Usually the rest kind of falls from there. I like that. And it's very simple and something you can continue to come back to. And it just, you know, it's one of those things, just keeping that as the North Star makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on today. If people want to learn more about you and Athena, where should they go? Yeah, they should go to goathena.com, E-T-H-E-N-A. Um, and uh, I'm <laughs> I'm sure uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of that would be, would be great as well. But yeah, we would absolutely love to train any of the um, folks who are listening. Anybody out there, it's something your companies have to do anyway. So if you want to modernize it, go to Athena. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Roxanne. Really fun.